BSD Talk number 18. It's Friday, February 17th, 2006. We have an interview today, and I'm going to jump straight to it. Tonight on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Marshall Kirk McCusick. He's a computer scientist and one of the early BSD developers at UC Berkeley. So I'd like to welcome you to this podcast maybe ask you to introduce yourself and maybe give a little history of how you started with the BSDs. This is Kirk McCusick, and uh, I started as a student at UC Berkeley in 1976. Uh, Matriculating the year before me was Bill Joy, with whom I shared an office for many years. And Bill was really the person that started the BSD project. It was really the Bill Joy project initially. He had written some utilities and uh, started distributing them around to a few folks, and uh, that very initial distribution was just called BSD, later referred to as 1BSD. At that point, it was just utilities and not an entire system. There were several revisions to that, but ultimately in about 1979 was with the release of 3BSD was the first full system, operating system, all the utilities, etc. I got involved simply by work, by virtue of the fact that I worked in the same office as Bill, and Bill had this infectious ability to just suck in all the people around him to whatever he was working on. So I initially worked on the Pascal system that he had started and uh, got quite involved with that, uh, which then led to later work which I did on the uh, design of the BSD fast file system. And a lot of this work was uh, in conjunction with DARPA, wasn't it? The early work was being done just by Bill as a one-man show. But in 1979, the, the project had gotten a high enough profile that the uh, department was, through the auspices of Professor Bob Fabry, was able to secure a DARPA grant to cover some of the BSD development work because DARPA was looking for a common operating system base that could be used by all of its contractors. And Bill convinced them that uh, Unix was the right platform because it didn't tie them to a particular vendor. At that point in time, the primary competitor was VMS, which ran, of course, only on the Digital Equipment Corporation machines. And Bill's argument was that one would never know, know how well a particular company would do and that you were much better off to have a platform that would allow you to run on lots of different hardware. Although be honest, at the time, uh, the only thing that Unix ran on was deck equipment. Uh, But that very quickly changed in the early 80s with the advent of workstations, including uh, the Sun Microstation, uh, Sun Workstations, which was, of course, a company that Bill went off to found. I guess it was during this time in the early 80s, uh, also around the time when Bill went to Sun, that the ARPANET was starting to grow and TCPIP was put into the BSDs. So one could almost say that the BSDs were part of the original creation of the Internet. That was certainly true. Up until the early 1980s, uh, the ARPANET ran a protocol called NCP. 
uh, and NCP was uh, ran only in specialized processors uh, and had a maximum of 256 hosts. And so it was clear that uh, as this was growing that that was going to outlive its usefulness. And so the early project at Berkeley, the thing that was actually being funded by DARPA, was to bring up this new protocol, TCP/IP, And uh, the, the job was split between uh, Bolt, Bermick, and Nguyen, BBNN, uh, who was writing the TCP/IP protocols, and Berkeley, who was uh, responsible for defining, defining and building the API for that. So the, the socket interface that we all know and love or hate today uh, was the API that was designed at Berkeley. The TCP/IP code itself came from BBNN, but was then rather dramatically enhanced at Berkeley in order to get uh, performance up. Uh, as delivered from BBNN, it worked. Uh, it would saturate a, a one MIP CPU running at about 56 kilobits, which was the speed of the ARPANET at that time, so it was considered adequate. But when we brought it up on Ethernet, you would still only get 56 KB of throughput on a, at that time, three megabit Ethernet. And so Bill did a lot of tuning to get it to run at full tilt uh, over 3 megabits and later 10 megabit Ethernet. This led to a certain amount of uh, uh, disagreement between BBNN and Berkeley, but uh, that ultimately got resolved, and uh, the Berkeley version of both the API and the TCP IP code was ultimately released. And yes, you're correct that that was the basis for nearly all the implementations of TCP IP uh, up until at least the early 90s. And eventually, the BSD distribution untangled itself from the AT&T code. And one consequence of that was the release of an operating system under the BSD license. I didn't know if you could give us some insights as to the discussions around the license and how it was chosen, what possible other options were looked at. By the mid-1980s, it was becoming clear that a lot of vendors wanted to get their hands on the TCP IP code that, that appeared in BSD, uh, but they didn't want to pay the ever-escalating license fees that AT&T required. So up until the late 1980s, uh, in order to get a release of BSD, you had to first get a source license from AT&T, which then allowed you to, to pay an additional $1,000 and get the BSD distribution. And uh, when the AT&T licenses were twenty or $50,000, that was okay. But by the mid-'80s, they had risen to a quarter million to a half a million dollars, and this was out of range for smaller companies. And so they came to us and asked if we could release the TCP IP code, since that was clearly Berkeley code. Uh, and we agreed to do that, and in order to do that, we then had to go talk to the Berkeley lawyers about getting a, you know, an agreement that we could change the license on this code. And the Berkeley lawyers uh, saw this as an opportunity for Berkeley to start garnering royalties from the TCP IP code, but we were uh, rather insistent that this had been developed with government money and that Berkeley didn't have the right to do that, and that what we really wanted to do was have a license that would just let people do what they wanted with it. About this time, the Free Software Foundation was also starting up, and they had the GNU public license, so we considered that but we actually felt that it was too restrictive in the sense that it required you to give away your code that you, if you made any changes, you had to give that away, plus any other code that was associated with it. 
And since the TCP/IP code ran in the kernel, it essentially meant that they had to give away uh, their entire kernel. So we were neither happy with the, the copyright, which was the, the sort of traditional lock up all the rights and make people pay, nor the copy left, uh, which required them to give away their intellectual property. So we sort of uh, termed ourselves the copy center, you know, take it down and make as many copies as you want, do what you want. Unlike the copy left, we did not require people to return stuff to us or to make their source code available. Uh, we encouraged them to do so, and many of them did, in fact, return significant amounts of code to us, uh, not out of altruism, but because they got so tired of having to merge their changes back in every time we did a new release, they were much happier just to give it to us, so we put it in there, and their changes were just there. But at any rate, uh, there was a lot of debate with the university lawyers, but they ultimately uh, came up with the wording, which is the, the BSD license today, and we put that then on the TCP IP code and related utilities, which we released in 1988. Uh, that, of course, was not a complete system and was just a small sub-piece of it, but it's what people immediately needed at that point in time. However, having gotten this done, we then looked and said, well, now this is, you know, there's, there's great opportunity here. There's a lot more code that we developed at Berkeley. Uh, and in particular, this uh, one of the people that worked with me at Berkeley, Keith Bostick, was really got a bee under his bonnet to try and see how much code we could free up. And, uh, well, to make a long story short, he managed to free up all the interesting bits, uh, other than, of course, the kernel, which then led us to have to go through the kernel file by file to figure out which bits were ours and which weren't, and to clean out the bits that weren't. And when that dust settled, we found that we had all but about six of the key kernel files uh, had been freed up. So we released that in about 1989, and it didn't take very long after we released that for uh, diligent hackers out on the net to fill in the six missing files. So by 1990, there was actually a, a freestanding BSD. And the, there were sort of two groups that, that came out from that. Well, three, really. There was NetBSD and FreeBSD, which are the two ones that continue today. NetBSD really wanting to stick with the sort of university research, keep the system small, make it run on lots of platforms group. And the FreeBSD group that really wanted to go just all out to make it as user-friendly as possible running on the PC architecture. And since they, were, they really had divergent goals, they quickly formed two separate groups, although there's a lot of crosstalk that goes on, the code that flies back and forth due to the fact that they both have maintained that Berkeley-style license. Uh, then the third group was a company, uh, Berkeley Software Design Incorporated, which went off to try and make a proprietary version, and they sold that through the 90s, and eventually that company was purchased by Wind River Systems uh, and incorporated that technology into their offerings. And moving from the past to the present, are there in any interesting computer-related projects that you're working on today? Uh, I have spent a lot of time over the last few years um, working on enhancing the file system. So uh, I did a thing called soft updates, which is a lot like journaling. It, does, it, it gives you the same effect of letting the file system run quickly, but uh, stable and recoverable. A project called, well, snapshots, which allow you to take a snapshot of the file system, which allows you to do dumps on live systems and background file system checks and so on. 
Then two years ago, I wrote a book, The Design Implementation of the FreeBSD Operating System. And last year and this year, I've been developing courseware around that book, teaching classes and videotaping them. In fact, I have a class, a code reading class, which I'm busily trying to get together because it starts next week. It uh, runs beginning next week all the way into June. We'll read approximately 80,000 lines of, of the FreeBSD kernel source code. So it's, it's really for those geeky geeks that want to dive down and see the little details. If you're interested, there's a link on the www.prebsd.org webpage. And uh, then going forward, I'm hoping to finally get my toes back into uh, working on code. Uh, there's a lot of things that still would like I'd like to see done in the file system. I, we do need a journaling version of it because uh, there's certain people that just it's a checkbox for them. They want journaling. Uh, so I'll definitely be adding that. And there's a lot of work that's going on now around NFS version 4. And there's uh, a prototype of that in FreeBSD, but it really needs some fleshing out and filling out some of the details and other things of that sort. So that's the work that I'm looking forward to getting a chance to do uh, once I wrap up this course. So maybe if I could get you to put on your professor hat for 15 seconds, could you give us a succinct description of what's the difference between the fast file system and the UFS? Uh, well, UFS is the, the nickname for the Unix file system, and the fast file system is the Unix file system um, on most BSD systems. There are different variants of the disk layout, primary one being the fast file system. There's also a log-based file system that one can run and a memory-based variant of it that's used for temporary file systems like slash temp. And now perhaps uh, going from the present to the future, I'd be interested to hear your ideas about where the BSDs are going, uh, especially in the competitive landscape with proprietary operating systems and other free and open source operating systems. Well, the main operating systems that are in contention for the, uh, the big prize today, of course, Windows is the holds by far the greatest market share. Linux has made a very strong run, especially with the backing of IBM, who's now essentially made it possible for the, the Fortune uh, 500 or Fortune 1000 to, to accept Linux in because they can get a real company behind it with real support, etc. I think that Linux has a ways to go before it's going to be a, a viable replacement for the desktop, but they're getting narrow a lot more quickly than I would have guessed even five years ago. A lot of people say, you know, Linux isn't as complete and it doesn't interoperate as well and it's just harder to use. Uh, and I, I like to look back in the days of uh, mainframe computers, which is what everybody used, and this, this pesky little thing called a PC came along. And people laughed at it because it was small and it wasn't very powerful and it was a pain in the neck to use and it didn't do half the stuff you wanted to do but it was a factor of 10 cheaper than mainframe computing. And because it was so much cheaper, people found a way to make it work to the point today where PCs are the predominant computers. The mainframes haven't gone away, but they're a niche market uh, and uh, the, the PC is king. I'm arguing that the open source model of uh, computing today is going to have the same effect. It's, you know, it's doesn't have the functionality and it's harder to use and a lot of other things compared to the proprietary software, be it Windows or uh, applications, but 
it's so much cheaper that people are going to find a way to make it work. And, and we're starting to see that come to fruition, first with IBM picking up Linux and throwing out their own operating system. We're seeing that with uh, the announcement by Oracle this, just this week that they bought Sleepy Cat software and they're in play to pick up two other open source vendors and you know, they, they feel that that's a model that's, that's going to be important. So I think that, that Linux is going to continue to take an ever-increasing market share away from Windows. I don't think Windows is ever going to go away. Well, ever is a long time, but I think it will be fall from being the most predominant one, and I think that, that Linux will probably take that place, which then, of course, leads to the question of where is BSD going to be. BSD, at this point in time, has a, a strong but small market share. It, it has a large and growing number of developers. There's at least 10,000 developers between NetBSD and FreeBSD. So uh, it's not in any sense fading away. And in, in the areas where it is really strong, which is in the server markets, uh, it's extremely well entrenched. So I think that it it will continue to be there. I do not think that it's going to ever become the, the predominant uh, operating system, but I think it's going to fill an important part in the eco space. The big problem that Windows has is it's such a huge target, and it's absolutely consistent across every machine, so that if you write a virus that can break into it, you can break into 80% of the machines out there. So you need genetic diversity, and if Linux were to replace Windows as the single biggest thing, then it would have the same problem. And so there's always a need to have more than one operating system out there that can uh, run things like your back office. And in fact, one of the big success stories that FreeBSD or NetBSD has is it's not Linux and it's not Windows. And so it's, it's a small enough that it, it's relatively uninteresting to the people that target viruses. And it's been around long enough and it's become bulletproof enough that even if they decide to attack it, it's a much bigger wall to get over, certainly, than the, the other operating systems there. So I think it will continue to have a, you know, a strong following. Today it has an installed base of a couple million users, uh, and that number is growing, albeit slowly. So it's nowhere near the kinds of numbers that you're seeing with Linux or Windows, but uh, neither is it anything to sneeze at. Great. Well, I want to thank you very much for speaking with us today. Okay. Well, it has certainly been my pleasure to chat with you. Take care, and good luck with your future work with the BSDs. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to leave comments on our website, you can reach us at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.